How does climate change affect health? And what can medical professionals do about it? Those are the very questions we hope to answer here on Code Green, the Climate Smart Health Professional. I'm Sarah Shu, your host for today's episode. Today, we'll be speaking about ciguatera fish poisoning and how climate change is affecting the incidence and spread of this disease. I'm very excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Mindy Richland, Assistant Director of the U.S. National Office for Harmful Algal Blooms and member of the Greater Caribbean Center for Ciguatera Research. Welcome, Dr. Richland, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. I'm very happy to be here. So, to be honest, ciguatera poisoning was the one topic I crammed in the day before my step one exam. And really, all we had to remember was that it depolarizes the sodium channels in neurons. But obviously, the disease is so much more complicated than that. So, Dr. Richland, could you start by explaining to us what ciguatera poisoning is and what the primary symptoms are? Yes, sure. Um, Ciguatera poisoning is caused by eating coral reef fish that are contaminated with a suite of toxins that are known as ciguatoxins. The symptoms of ciguatera are very diverse and include gastrointestinal, cardiovascular, and neurological disturbances. And this is because ciguatoxin is a potent activator of the sodium channels of cells found throughout the body, including those in muscle and nerve tissues. Ciguatera usually begins to develop about three to six hours after eating a toxic fish, but some of the symptoms, such as the neurological disturbances, may appear several hours later. The gastrointestinal symptoms, which typically appear first, could include nausea and stomach pain, vomiting and diarrhea. Cardiovascular symptoms could include an irregular heart rhythm, slower fast heart rate and low blood pressure. The neurological symptoms in particular are diverse and can be debilitating. Some people uh, may complain of a tingling sensation, itching, numbness, or pain in their joints and muscles, tooth pain, or the feeling as if their teeth are loose, and blurred vision. The um, kind of very classic or hallmark symptom of ciguatera is a hot cold temperature reversal. And this is in which you know cold things feel hot and vice versa. Um, but not all patients report this. The symptoms usually last a few days, but can linger for months or years. And mortality has occurred, uh, but fortunately, it's very rare. Wow. Okay. So it doesn't seem like ciguatera poisoning is just your run-of-the-mill food poisoning. So do all patients with ciguatera experience all of these symptoms? Not everybody reports all of these symptoms. For example, some individuals may only report gastrointestinal symptoms, while um, some very unfortunate people suffer from debilitating neurological problems uh, that can occur years after being poisoned and may suffer from uh, relapses from time to time. Um, I have been uh, contacted for information by people who have suffered from ciguatera for years. And this uh, significantly impacts their quality of life, in addition to um, just being an ongoing and extremely serious health problem. Okay, so when people eat certain fish with these high levels of ciguatoxins, they can get ciguatera poisoning. So how do the fish become toxic in the first place? So Just by way of background, um, there are microalgae in our oceans that photosynthesize and produce over 
half of the world's oxygen. However, um, of these many phytoplankton species, a few dozen produce what are known as harmful algal blooms, all, also known as HABs. And there are a few different ways that HAB species can cause harm. So the first is when they produce toxins, um, such as in the case of ciguatera. So these microalgae are inadvertently eaten by herbivorous reef fish while they graze on seaweeds. And um, these fish accumulate ciguatoxins in their body tissues. These toxins can also accumulate in the coral reef food web and are frequently found at highest levels in carnivorous fishes. And this includes uh, species such as uh, moray eel, snapper, and barracuda. How is climate change then affecting these harmful algae blooms and therefore the incidence of ciguatera poisoning? Yes, so climate change is transforming our oceans, our lakes, and our rivers. And there is a general consensus that the effects of climate change are also contributing to the global expansion of HABs. So from what we know about the physiology of the HAB species that cause ciguatera, we expect that as the oceans warm, the species may be able to expand its range beyond um, tropical and subtropical regions. And there could be a higher growth potential um, in many regions overall. So in the United States, range expansion could mean an increased incidence of ciguatera in Florida and in the northern Gulf of Mexico. Are we seeing more cases of ciguatera poisoning then because of the growth of harmful algae blooms? Well, in some locations, such as the in the Eastern Caribbean, an increase of ciguatera incidence has been reported, but in other locations, the incidence appears to be flat or decreasing. But one of the challenges in estimating the true incidence and impact of ciguatera is um, a real lack of epidemiological data, as well as the studies that are needed to produce these estimates. Um, in addition, these efforts to capture incidence rates of ciguatera are significantly hampered by um, frequent misdiagnoses and misclassification, um, particularly in regions where ciguatera is not endemic. So, um, for example, um, the inland U.S. I see. So what does this mean for healthcare workers? Should providers in certain regions be more prepared to see rising cases? And should providers in non-coastal regions also be trained to identify and treat ciguatera poisoning? Well, given the apparent geographic expansion of ciguatera and increasing international trade in seafood, healthcare workers outside of ciguatera endemic regions may very well see rising cases. For example, um, if ciguatera becomes more established and prevalent in Florida and the northern Gulf of Mexico. Um, there have been multiple examples of outbreaks occurring in areas that historically have not been affected. Uh, some examples include Canada, Germany, Paris, um, and several cities in the continental U.S., such as New York City. So these were all, these outbreaks were all associated with fish imported from ciguatera endemic regions. So ciguatera is no longer confined to um, coastal tropical communities. Got it. Okay, so I'd love to summarize what you've told us so far with a theoretical case study. So I'm going to read the case and together we can discuss best practices for how to help this patient. So let's say we have a 42-year-old male with no significant past medical history who presents to your clinic complaining of a burning sensation underneath his skin. He reports an episode of nausea and vomiting roughly two days ago. 
And he also notes a strange phenomenon where when he drinks cold water, it produces a burning sensation in his mouth. So Dr. Richland, to start, what questions should we as medical professionals be asking this patient to determine if they might have ciguatera fish poisoning? First would be their history of seafood consumption. Uh, For example, like what, where, and when did they eat fish? What kind of fish did they eat, etc.? It's also important to ask about shellfish consumption because this can help distinguish ciguatera from shellfish poisonings that are associated with other algal toxins, and this includes paralytic shellfish poisoning and neurotoxic shellfish poisoning. Um, Remember that uh, certain fish are most commonly associated with ciguatera, and these include the top carnivores, uh, barracuda, hogfish, snapper, uh, amberjack, and grouper, but you can also um, do a search online if you forget. A travel history would also be helpful. For example, did they just return home from a ciguatera endemic area and what was their history of seafood consumption while there? But remember that there have been ciguatera outbreaks outside of tropical and subtropical locations as well. Okay, so we ask about his travel history and his history of seafood consumption, and the patient says he has not traveled outside of his home state of Colorado for the past year. He did, however, buy frozen fish from a local international market, and he asks his daughter to text a photo of the packaging label, and you find out that the fish was actually caught in the Fiji Islands. At this point, you're thinking, you know, ciguatera poisoning might be in the differential. And so you said there's a lot of misdiagnosis of ciguatera. Can you explain to us how we would confirm whether this patient has it? So confirmation of ciguatera would require obtaining a remnant of the fish that was eaten and caused illness and then um, having it screened for ciguatoxins. Other than getting a remnant of the fish to be sent and screened, is there any other way we can run an assay of, let's say, the patient's blood to see if they might have ciguatera? No, you can't. You can diagnose it based on the symptoms, but you really need a remnant of the fish. There's no, there's no assay to detect ciguatoxin in a patient's blood. And here I'd like uh, to mention that one of the top priorities for our Ciguatera Center for Oceans and Human Health involves creating informational resources for healthcare providers about Ciguatera and other HAB poisoning syndromes. We're in the process of compiling information about symptoms and treatment options, which will be highlighted on our website and through social media. And I'd be happy to share this with you or finish putting it, putting it all together. That would be so helpful. Can you give us a rundown of how we treat this kind of poisoning? So there is no specific antitoxin or antidote for ciguatera. So management is generally supportive. And I think what can be very, very frustrating for people suffering from ciguatera is that they just have this, these symptoms that just, these neurological symptoms that will drag on and on and on and on and really impact their quality of life for many years. Mannitol infusions have been used with apparent success, at least in acute cases and when administered early, Um, but the benefit has not been clearly established. Um, Gastric lavage and activated charcoal could be considered if a patient presents shortly after ingestion. Otherwise, you would treat this like uh, many other food poisonings with IV fluids and antidiarrheals. You could also consider pain meds like NSAIDs or gabapentin for neuropathic pain. 
Um, but again, there haven't been clinical trials to evaluate these treatments for ciguatera. And finally, patients with ciguatera poisoning should be counseled about avoiding certain foods while they recover, uh, particularly seafood, but also nuts, caffeine, and alcohol, as they can worsen or prolong the symptoms of ciguatera poisoning. And some patients, unfortunately, experience a relapse, which can be triggered by um, eating, eating seafood, but also by stressors such as overwork or by another illness. All right. So, Dr. Richland, for our listeners, I'm going to try to sum this all up. So, it sounds like ciguatera poisoning is already the most common marine toxin in the world. But climate change is a key factor that's causing the growth of these HABs and therefore increasing the incidence of ciguatera fish poisoning. And so, as healthcare providers, we should become familiar with some of the more pathognomonic features of ciguatera fish poisoning, such as cold hot reversal or, like you said, tingling. And this is especially important because most cases are currently being dismissed as food poisoning. So if we have patients come in reporting food poisoning from fish, it's really important that we start getting history about the type of fish eaten, the location of where the fish was purchased. You talked about how, you know, barracuda, grouper, and snapper are definitely fish that would clue us into this disease. And if we suspect ciguatera, we should consider reporting it so that there's better public and environmental health stewardship around this issue. And hopefully, you know, from this episode and if more healthcare providers learn how to properly diagnose ciguatera, there could also be more interest in providing a specific treatment for it, especially if this disease is becoming more prevalent in our changing world. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Richland, for joining us today. This was so informative and so helpful. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Where can our listeners find out more about your work? For general information about HABs, you can visit hab.hui.edu, and I'll spell that out. It's hab.whoi.edu. Information about Ciguatera and our Greater Caribbean Center for Oceans and Human Health can be found at ciguacohh.org, and that's C-I-G-U-A-C-O-H-H dot O-R-G. We will definitely link those in our show notes for our listeners to find. Thank you all again for tuning in to this episode of Code Green, the Climate Smart Health Professional. Thank you again to Dr. Richland for teaching us so much about ciguatera fish poisoning, harmful algal blooms, and climate change. This podcast is co-hosted and produced by Natasha Sood and Sarah Shu. This episode was sound edited by Liana Hagis. We have Julia Rothschild on Twitter and Maddie Baylor-Tatman on Instagram. This podcast series could also not have been possible without support from medical students for a sustainable future. We also want to acknowledge the indigenous lands on which we are recording from. I'm recording from Providence, Rhode Island, which sits on the traditional homelands of the Narragansett, Wampanoag, Nipmuc, Pequot, and Niantic Nations. Dr. Richland is speaking to us from Woods Hole, Massachusetts, which sits on the traditional homelands of the Wampanoag tribe. And lastly, we want to hear from you. Send us an email at codegreenclimatepod at gmail.com. We also invite you to join our community on Instagram at codegreenclimatepod and Twitter at codegreenpod. 
please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this show. Thank you again for tuning in to Code Green, the climate smart health professional. We'll see you next time.